2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined by three guests. Together, they are the editors of the new collection Acquired Tastes, Stories About the Origins of Modern Food, out today from MIT Press. I welcome them one by one. Benjamin Cohen is an environmental historian and science and technology studies scholar who's an associate professor at Lafayette College and has written two books, Pure Adulteration, Cheating on Nature in the Age of Manufactured Food, and Notes from the Ground, Science, Soil, and Society in the American Countryside. Dr. Cohen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having us on. Michael Kadekel is on the history faculty of Princeton Day School, and his first monograph is forthcoming from Oxford University Press. It's called Fresh from the Factory, Breakfast Cereals, Natural Food, and the Business of Reform, 1890-1920. to Dr. Kadekel, thanks for joining us. Hi,
4: Ryan. Thanks a lot.
3: And rounding out the trio is Anna Zeta, Associate Professor of History at Virginia Tech, where she is the founding director of the College of Liberal Arts and Human Sciences Food Studies Program. Her first book, Canned, The Rise and Fall of Consumer Confidence in the American Food Industry, won the 2019 Award for Best Reference History and Scholarship Book from the James Beard Foundation. She is also the podcast's first return guest, and the episode we recorded back in 2018 is still the one I most often recommend to folks wondering where to start. Dr. Zeta, welcome back.
0: (laughs) Thank you for that great introduction, Brian. Thanks for having us
3: it's wonderful to have you all here and and you you all are are, are are kind of major players in the field of food studies and and food history and I wondered how you ended, ended up in that field and in the in your time as historians of food what are some of the more interesting ways that thinking about modern food inside and outside the academy has, has changed during your time as scholars maybe um, Anna could we start with you
0: sure Um Well, my path to food, I think, comes both through um, my personal and sort of family history, which is probably another story. And also um, when I started my Ph.D. program in the um, history of science, medicine and technology at the University of Wisconsin, I was really casting about for a topic that both I felt passionate about. You know, I heard the advice that when you pick a dissertation topic, it should be something you're happy to sit with for a decade. Uh, at least. And indeed, that turned out to be about the timeline uh, of my first project. Um, And also something for me that really brought together a lot of my interests. History of science, medicine, technology already, it brings so many things together. And I was also someone who was really interested in environmental history and consumer history and um, social and cultural history, all of these things And, and so many other topics felt like they, sort of put me into one of those categories or another, whereas food remained something that um, requires such an interdisciplinary kind of look to really understand and get at the heart of of what's going on. And so I say food helped me not have to make a decision. It helped me sort of remain um, tied into all of these interests that I had. Um, and it also felt like it connected to concerns and, and, uh, interests I had about the present and the future and that, that something that, that this book is very much trying to engage with as well is sort of how can we find a usable past and how can some of the issues in our current moment, um, be better fleshed out or understood through history.
3: Thanks. Muki. how did you become a historian of cereal? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> a historian of cereal.
4: I, uh, You know, I think I sort of got sucked in slowly and accidentally um, because I discovered food history in college um, and initially approached it as something in the way that I think a lot of people first get to uh, history of food, which is, oh, this seems fun. Uh, And a lot of people I like are taking this class and uh, seem to do food activism. And as I got deeper into it, um, you know, I think i I discovered, I don't know, we watched Food Inc um, and read Michael Pollan, and I said, well, that's i'm I've got to be the next Michael Pollan. this guy's amazing. And um, and people were interested in it and and I kept going, um, and I was interested in it. Um, but I think, you know, and so, with my trajectory, but also to answer your initial question, I think part, so much of it was going from, oh, food is interesting, food is inviting. Food is fun to. Actually, food is representative of so much more, and food clues us into these incredibly serious issues. And so if you want to learn about the about food properly, you have to understand the entire social and political context of where that food's being eaten. And a really good way to find out that context is to start by looking at the food. Um, and so I think... Part of the field has been getting increasingly um, taken more and more seriously and being seen for um, the in the amount of insight it, it can shed onto a, a, quite a variety of issues um, and so to go back to your initial description maybe a historian of cereal but so much more right that historian of cereal is kind of like the fun playful way to put it but what if you're going to be a historian of cereal that also means you have to study racism and class and gender and uh, politics and advertising and everything in between. So,
5: so yeah.
3: Absolutely, thanks. And, and Ben, you've worked in a number of different fields inside of environmental history and STS, and I wonder, how, how did you get to food?
5: Yeah, I, I, I began more as a, I think I began as an environmental historian coming out of grad school, and that was a focus for me that uh, allowed me to combine this interest in the history of science and technology, science, technology, and the environment um, with a background in science and technology studies. My, my doctorate is in STS. And so I was, I was interested from the start in the historical, philosophical, sociological dimensions of science and technology. And I, I um, focused that on agriculture and chemistry to understand um, how people understand the land, how people came to understand the land through new scientific methods and techniques in the 19th century. And um, that environmental and agricultural Interest um, eventually led me to, you know, teach some classes and work a lot with students on local food issues, you know, contemporary 21st century issues. You know, working with student farms and working on um, student projects, um, which are inherently interesting to undergrads and maybe to everybody. And I, I think because of that, um, I got increasingly interested in um, connecting the agricultural um, production side to the, the more consumer food purchasing side and um, trying to understand the the chains that connect them. And so I, I've kind of, in my mind, tried to move from this production, distribution, consumption um, network, or uh, I don't usually say life cycle, I'll try to shy away from life cycle, but I might as well say it, like this this more life cycle history. Um, and so uh, that ends with, up with, with food as the, as the product of the land. Um, and since food now isn't always the product of the land, it's now become interesting to see why why isn't that still always the case when it used to be entirely the case?
3: Thanks. And Mookie mentioned Michael Pollan, and I I still think about when Omnivore's Dilemma came out. That, that was the moment when it felt like everyone was just talking about food. Everyone around me was talking about food, and that that was 13 years ago now. And so I'm curious as as to how you've and of course it's not just Pollan at all, but how you've seen the the conversation change in your time you know, over the last decade plus. And you know what's the conversation this book is entering into, and what and what made you want to put it together? I'm going to start with Ben again.
5: Um, yeah, thank you. Um, we, we actually we dabbled and and um, debated how much to to you know, want to refer to the the Michael Pollan anchor. It's so it's so ubiquitous. We even had comments in the review process of like, really, are you going to mention Pollan <laughs> again? Um, but but that's that's the one. Um, I, I mean, I shouldn't say that's the one. It's not singular. And part of what we're working on is that it's not a, a singular view of, of the history of food, uh, but it's been a very influential one. Um, I, I, think, um, from my perspective, uh, you know, the, if, if there's one payout or one huge argument of the book, it's please, we need to, we need to move back to understand where modern food came from. It's not a post-war phenomenon. I think that's probably our, our main contribution. It's not one that we invented other scholars, other historians have, have talked and written quite a lot about this. Um, but because of the popularity of food writing in the last 15 or 20 years, uh, which has included pop food histories, which has included pollen, um, there there seems to be a, a more popular conception of um, that the post-war era is the origin of modern food. And if we want to resolve issues that people think uh, are problematic and that I share in the concern about problematic nature of, of current food systems, then we need to attend to the changes that happened after World War II. And this, is, this always troubled me as a scholar, as a historian, um, believing that um, we're, we're not we're only going to be scratching the surface. We're not actually begin, beginning at the roots of you know the foundational virtues and values and, and ideological commitments that still lay inside the, um, this nebulous term, modern food system. Um, so uh, there's a split, and maybe I can hand this over to, to Anna and, and Muki here, um, because I think there's a split in there's um, great scholarship. An amazing historical work, uh, of which we're contributing to. Um, uh, but it's not read in the same way that the popular food histories are. So it's not breaking through or it's not, yeah, maybe it just takes longer, but it's not, it's not changing the public conversation that I'm part of in like local food meetings or organizations or, um, food policy councils, um, which might other be characterized as like the everyday mainstream conversation. Um, those historical stories are still being carried forward from the it all happened after world war 2 kind of pop food writing and uh, we're trying to pull together um, the historical work that that's uh, i think very effective um, with this broader longer history yeah
3: great
0: and i and I'll jump we ben. dive into some uh, of the oh yeah
5: thanks great go
0: ahead Is That okay um, yeah i yes i wanted to add i think that um you know, to, we, we talked a lot about the ways that kind of history is deployed in some of these popular food writings, but in a very loose and sort of like, well, in the old days, you know, this was the way that people ate. And World War II emerged as a really useful kind of anchor point that was often, I think, just thrown out without a lot of precision or a lot of sense of what was it about World War II that made these these pivot points. And, and I think part of what we want to add is is that kind of a bit more precision, particular stories that help illuminate when these changes started to shift. But it was still a large period of time, but you know, a deeper history and looking forward that having a sense of that past that's actually much more grounded in the scholarship was important. While at the same time, we really, I think, The reason the pollen is the touchstone is because he just writes so well, and the storytelling is so engaging, and it still holds up in a lot of ways. And um, despite you know whatever correctives we might want to offer, I think we really also wanted to pull from that storytelling um, tradition and way of making food something that. people want to read about, want to learn about, want to see why it's more than just serial and something more complex and fascinating um, and important. And so to to try to do both, I think, is a big goal of the book.
3: If we could get more into that question on storytelling and how do we break out of the kind of the the academic writing kind of trap here. Mookie, you know, to be honest, edited volumes, you know, don't enjoy the best reputation sometimes, you know, they're Maybe they're disjointed, they're kind of not not, not uh, speaking to each other, they don't have maybe large readerships, maybe only they're bought by libraries or this kind of thing. And so, but it really, it's really clear that in putting yours together, you all haven't taken the traditional path. You've tried to do some things, you know, different to avoid some of these traps. And I, I wonder if you'd share with listeners some of the choices you made assembling and editing the collection.
4: Absolutely. And this was something we thought about as we got into putting this together. Um, and it was certainly things, something that people said to us along the way uh, but we went for it I think because this originated in the um, a feeling among the three of us that we had seen a lot of great work um, that illuminated a lot of issues we wanted to talk about but we hadn't seen it together um, and you know it's I think in some ways it's too bad that edited collections get that reputation um, because you see so much uh, in the historical profession, you see so much hand-wringing about the specialized monograph. And, uh, well, what happened to the generalist history? And, well, okay, but the problem with the generalist history is that it's just written by one person and it's one perspective. Um, and maybe they can't tell that story of everything that well. Um, and so the obvious antidote to that is a multi-authored collection. But then people stick up their notes about that too. But I think, you know, hopefully with works... Um, Like this one, we can kind of uh, change that because I think one thing we tried to do was make the works coherent, uh, not in terms of forcing the same voice on all of them, but in terms of gathering all our authors together. We gathered in person with everyone who was able to make it. Um, We worked with a writing coach all together. We went through a lot of um, revision and a lot of effort in terms of trying to include um, all the contributors Uh, helping to edit it and give feedback on each other's work. And so hopefully that that blend of diversity and coherence comes through. I think we have a line in the introduction uh, where we say, you know, we have all these stories and we're not looking to draw one through line between them because the experience of modern food is a diverse experience and there are contradictions and differences there. And that's okay. I think part of what we want people to come away from this is to have comfort with that ambiguity and that lack of um, firm answers on on what what's happening here, with this sense of overarching uh, themes.
3: Anna, could you say a little bit more about how you try to help authors that are not necessarily, you know, trained in this sort of storytelling mode um, uh, achieve that?
0: Yes. So I think we definitely wanted to draw from other disciplines and thinking about what a collection like this can be. So edited volumes, even as as it's title to me, convey something unwieldy and not that interesting. But we often try to refer to it as a collection of essays or an anthology, or, um, you know, I think in, in nonfiction, fiction, short stories, poetry, these kinds of anthologies are much more common. And um, we wanted to draw from that tradition to think about what is it to take lots of smaller stories that each have their own weight and heft, but put them together. So it's an experience like, um, you know, a collection. And so toward that end, one of the things I think we did that was unique was that we hired a writing coach, Helen Rubenstein, um, to join us for the in-person weekend. We had a workshop together in, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where we rented out a big house and we all got together for the weekend after writing first drafts. And all the Um, contributors both got to meet one another, got to talk to each other, got to sort of get a sense of personality that I think, you know, is always part of our writing and who we are as people is, is embedded in in the work that we do. And then the Helen's role as a writing coach and someone who a big part of her work um, as a writer and teacher is working with academics and other writers to help them pull out their stories was to have this perspective from a more writerly um, realm to say, what, what what inspires us? You know, what are the passions in this writing? How do we use characters? How do we use narrative and place and you know scene setting and these other um, tools from creative nonfiction and pull that into our work? And I think for many contributors, it was a pretty transformative experience to approach their work and their writing from that perspective. Something that many of us don't get in our training is a real attention to writing, to storytelling, to narrative, to to you know actually bringing people into our stories and not just assuming that they'll recognize why they matter. Um, and I think that that energy of that weekend and, and the experience with the writing coach carried through the revision process as we, as the editors, um, you know, ask people to continue to pull out those kinds of energies and to think about each other's work that they now knew much better because they knew the other authors
3: uh, as people. Yeah. It really shows through. I, I think, you know, the, the, the topics in the collection are quite diverse. There, there is this, sh- of course, this anchor around what what constitutes modern food and how we're moving the the timeline back before World War II. Um, but the topics are quite diverse. Yet it's, yet I think, every essay and I, I think makes a reference to another essay in the collection. Um, it doesn't feel forced. It really seems like it. It, it, it shows these kind of po- points of of connection, and you really draw these connections out for your reader, both in the introduction itself, but again, like throughout the essay. There's all these references to other parts of the collection, the anthology, um, and I wonder if you maybe could each speak about about t- two essays that, that do speak to each other in some way, um, whether it's large or small, you kind know, of that, that uh, play off each other, and also to give us a sense of what's what we find inside this anthology. But ben, can I start with you? What are a couple essays you think are 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 usefully paired together here?
5: Sure. Thank you for asking. Um... I'll I'll start at the beginning because I like the way that the the book starts. We have a a first section of the book is on collapsing space and time. And there's a series of five um, transnational histories and um, to uh, also, you know, to carry forward uh, Anna and and Muki's points a minute ago, part of what we were doing in constructing the contributions or or asking the contributors um, first is some small things like these will be somewhat shorter than standard academic essays. So, Keep them closer to you know five thousand words instead of ten thousand words, yeah, because that's more packageable, and you can imagine how to how to revise and work through that in a more narrative sense. Um, and Helen's input on that uh, was, I think, enormously helpful. Um, so that, for example, the, our first the first uh, chapter in the book, the first essay, is by Tom Finger, and it's about the development of of wheat production in Southern California. Um, and uh, his essay is really about the displacement and the violence and um, really uh, genocide of indigenous peoples to take over Tulare Lake and, and reconstitute it uh, through uh, both malicious and uh, capitalist means to become uh, uh, grain grain growing, so that they could sell it to um, England to the working class in England. Um, and I, I like that that essay. <laughs> Goes right into chapter two, which is David Fowser, and he's talking about uh, he's got I think what we call the biography of British bread, and so you get one perspective from from Tom's essay about new changes in global wheat distribution and why they happen, and to Mookie's earlier point, you know cereal isn't isn't just about cereal canning, isn't just about canning. These are about um, gender divisions and uh, political ideologies and geopolitical order. Uh, immigration, um, labor questions, industrial development, um, imperial, colonial politics. And so you see that in um, Tom's chapter about developing wheat. It's about all those things. And then you can see it from the other side when David's writing about changes in British bread and how new wheat from across the globe changes how bakers are operating in England. And, you know, they wrote these that come from different research bodies. Uh, David and Tom were doing different things, but then they, they come to connect really well across the Atlantic in ways that uh, I thought were I'm really happy with uh, um, it's a nice one 2 start I thought to the to the book
3: Absolutely yeah and I want to underscore what you said about the uh, brevity or concision of the of these essays. It's delightful as a reader, as a teacher thinking about assigning things it really the, the, the size of them is really uh, really welcome. Um, Mookie, what are two essays you think are uh, speak
4: to each other in a useful way? Um, sure. so I mean I think so I love all of them. <laughs> obviously. Um, I think, too, that maybe nicely get away get us away from the sort of, well, maybe they are still fun and playful in, in their own way, but I actually really like the way that uh, Tom Oakey's essay about distribution and uh, Amherst Williams' essay about uh, Marietta's lamb, uh, which is a, a girl in the 4-H program raising a lamb, uh, both, in their own ways, come to focus on death and the way that we deal with death um, and the death of animals or the death of food and how, we ha- how uh, people's relationship to uh, death and rotting and spoilage changes uh, in a time of an increased focus on sanitation and an increased focus on seeing yourself as separate from. Um, and these things that we're both People are both expected to raise and cultivate, um, but also kill and uh, then transport in a sanitary way is kind of an odd juxtaposition, uh, that I think, comes out really.
2: slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Thanks. And Anna, what's a pairing that, y- that you uh, would like to call out?
0: Um, yeah, well, one, one thing I'd say kind of as a broader note, as I look at the table of contents, you know, we spent a lot of time discussing sort of organizing these in a way that brings these disparate but connected essays into these topics. And we decided to um, categorize in the end in these three parts, the first part on time and space, the second on trust, and a third on science. And of course, different essays could have fit into different of these categories and, and those and those categories themselves are, are big in ways that they're all encompassing. But I think that those do help us to think about um, you know, how the essays have some internal resonance, how these big three themes really pull together what's happening around the turn of the 20th century in terms of transforming American life and creating connections to development of new consumer products through scientific use, through globalization. Um, And so toward that end, I'll look to a couple essays in the kind of last part, science. Um, I think that there's some really interesting connections between Lisa Haushoffer's essay on this um, Darby's fluid meat, um, which were these ideas about how to use scientific processes to extract the core nutrition from meat products to create, you know, something like the modern bullion cube and how science and imperialism come into play to these ideas about extracted nutrition, about meat and what role it plays and what is it about meat that really matters. Um, And at the same time, we have this, you know, second essay from Adam Sprinson on the development of protose, one of the earliest meat substitutes, Um, that until now, you know, the discussions around American vegetarianism were very much rooted in the work of John Harvey Kellogg at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. And Adam's essay brings in the really important but somewhat forgotten role of Ella Eaton Kellogg, um, John Harvey's wife, who really had a much more central role to play in the laboratory and the development of this alternative meat product at the turn of the 20th century. And again, thinking about the place of meat and science, and what Americans were talking about when we talk about what nutrition is, and um, how this connects to all of these broader discussions around modern food in the moment, and about what health is, what um, you know, wellness as a broader topic is, and how we get at it. So, I think that those two essays, the sort of meat and the fake meat, um, bring bring us together in really interesting ways.
3: Thank you all nice so much, and.
5: I missed that. I'm sorry.
0: Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to
5: see if I could. I was just thinking as, as um, Otto was talking, um, I, I could have I guess we could have answered any number of ways. But now I want to add another one, which um, I don't know if it's two essays. It's, there's a there's an unintentional running theme on color, I think, and it comes up in different ways. But I was thinking of David Singerman's essay on um, sugar imports and sugar analysis and its, its direct relationship with ideas of, of whiteness and propriety which is not a unique theme to to sugar, like the the color of a food and it's the sense of purity. Um, You know, this, it doesn't come up as much in in my essay in this book. It comes up a lot in my own in pure adulteration. Um, But it's, I I think there's a good, there's a clever way that Singerman narrates those connections of um, racial politics around what's the appropriate color of something um, with, the racial politics around food analysis, especially sugar. And that's something that comes up with the um, Bowser's um, bread biography too about white bread and brown bread. And then if you take those together, this comes up um, in, in the other, in several other essays too, like uh, in Farron Levesque's um, contribution, um, their essay is about really a, a, an origin story of food justice in America and although it's not necessarily the color of the food, it's, it's so fully about the color of the people. I'm talking about Ida B. Wells in, in Memphis and Lucy Parsons in Chicago and the way that white populations reacted to black grocers. Um, and uh, I think uh, they did a, a nice job of characterizing um, almost on the flip side where a singerman is talking about the color of sugar and how this is not disconnected from how people understand the color of people racial hierarchies that were being constructed or enforced. Um, Farron from the other side is talking about and exploring how um, the color of people is, in, is not disconnected from how um, governments or policies are understanding or treating what's an acceptable way to distribute food or to build um, uh grosser ownership and, and power in a community. Um, it comes up again, you know, I, I guess I can start to, I'm not going to list off every single one, you know, <laughs> Tashima Thomas talks all about Josephine Baker's banana skirt. And, you know, it's a, <laughs> I almost, I guess I'll say like, it's a very colorful essay, like just in the stand, you know, in the, uh, in the writerly way, like, um, she's written it in a very colorful way. Like the, the prose is very colorful. Um, and it's about color also. Um, so that, um, uh, I don't think like in the intro, we don't hit that on the nose of like, watch for this and look for it essay after essay. But um, when you look back at it, I think that it does thread through In almost all the sections you see that kind of racial um, observation.
3: It's such a rich collection. Yeah. And as, and as you uh, teased here, Ben, you three are not only editors, you're also contributors to, to the collection. And I'd love to hear you each say a little bit more about, about your contribution. Um, ben, your essay is called Gilded Sugar and Corn Syrups Long Con. And it opens the book section on trust that Anna was referring to. And I'm reading this alongside. I'm reading the new Jonathan Levy uh, Levy's like 900 page history of capitalism, and there's a a part in there where he says basically capitalism is always in some sense a confidence game, um, and uh, and and you're saying something similar here. And I wonder why you know why is trust such a major theme of of modern food specifically, and and how does the story of corn syrup show that to us?
5: Yeah, I mean, th- thanks for asking this. I'll, I'll admit that this one is actually excerpted. It's an adaptation from a chapter in my other book. Uh, I think that's the only one in, in our collection, which. Um, appears in at least in large part elsewhere. Um, it really—it's uh, the first essay in the trust section, and I um, we say in in our intro that the first section of the book, since so the trust section is the second section, carves um, out this understanding or, or shares a set of stories that help help readers understand what it means to seek to collapse space and time. These issues of transnational um, distribution and new production uh, networks and consumer outlets. And the payout for that is confusion and uncertainty. And there's a standard line in probably so many environmental histories or food histories about, you know, distance equals distrust, like the separation of the producer and consumer class explains everything. And I I sometimes get concerned that that's overstated and it's it's a very, like, one-to-one equation. That's somewhat, uh, it's not problematic, but it's it's simplified. Um, Yet I'll I'll accept the premise um, historically that, um, modern food systems that grow between the 1870s and 1930s um, are, are, are growing in this period where the producer class and the consumer class are greatly separated in ways that had, they have never been in human history. And that accounts for a great deal. And it accounts for um, un- uncertainty about the source of food, uncertainty about uh, who's selling it, uncertainty about its merits, because um, people have less to do with the production side. And so trust is us for me is a central variable and sugar um, is a great example of it because sugar is almost always um, at least in the modern like imperial age, it's coming from somewhere else when it's cane sugar. And so people are developing, you know, um, other kinds like beet sugar and um, grape sugar, um, sugar from, from vegetables because you can produce those um, more locally and perhaps you can have more familiarity with it. So glucose is the term that was that they that they used uh, to describe what had been called grape sugar. Now we just know glucose is one of the body sugars, but um, before it gained its modern medical identity, it was uh, an alternative to cane and beet sugar. Um, and it's fascinating to me because it too was suspect. People still didn't know what it was because it was coming from factories and it was highly processed, and it took a lot of um, sulfuric acid to make it. And um, you didn't know if it was going to make you sick. Um, without narrating the whole chapter, I mean, the uh, I begin it by understanding there was a, there was a big court case in the last 10 years over um, whether a certain corn syrup could call itself corn sugar. And it says caro, caro syrup, is it allowed to call itself corn sugar? What's the difference between corn sugar, corn syrup? And um, that case got settled where um, caro wasn't allowed to call itself corn sugar. But it fascinated me because caro syrup was the result of all these entanglements in the late 1800s when the glucose industry was trying to get off and away from the stain of its name, because it was perceived to be an adulteration. It was perceived to be um, an affront to sensibilities about purity and propriety. And so they, um, they didn't call it glucose anymore. They called it corn syrup and they came out with a new product called Caro, you know, 110 years ago. And so hundred years ago at the origins of this story, this was a solution to a problem to make sure people would trust it. And 100 years later, it ends up in this you know, multi-year court case where the confusion still persists. And um, I, was, I, I took it as a, a fascinating example of the consistency of this modern problem of trust, that we haven't solved it. We just keep shifting it to new forms. And that problem had begun in this period in the later, later 1800s.
3: Thanks. Mookie, your contribution is called "The Search for the Average Consumer: Breakfast Cereal and the Industrialization of the American Food Supply," and more than any others, I think it really hits home on on how hard it can be to write the history of food systems. And I wonder what are some of the challenges and that you've encountered trying to do that, and, and how have you faced them?
4: Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, so I think you know, and, and I want to uh, acknowledge what you said earlier about the the brevity and the brevity of the essays when you're thinking about assigning them. And I appreciate you saying that. I know um, you teach at, at Deerfield and I uh, um, came out of my PhD and I've been teaching high school too. And I love teaching high schoolers because uh, you know, there's this group of people that no one has yet uh, effectively taught to be ashamed of not knowing things. And (laughs) so they are so good at asking questions that, Really force you to explain yourself, and that has helped me refine my scholarship. I think more than more than so much so much else. Um, and part of writing this essay was thinking, okay, how would I explain this to my students? And this did not start off as an attempt to talk about the difficulties. It started out like so many, uh, uh, so much of my earlier academic work in graduate school, as an attempt to cover up the difficulties and to pretend that there were no difficulties. And as I went through, uh, you know, this was really born of the frustration of, okay, this isn't clicking. This isn't saying what I want to say. Um, I know I want to tell the story. Why do I want to tell it? Um, what is and why can't I get it to click? And I think at some point I realized that um, we all love the writerly. Uh, we all kind of want to be writers. And, and so many academics, I think, you know, they want to they write like they're writing for the New Yorker. And the New Yorker does so many wonderful things. But I think the New Yorker has also convinced us all that we need to find one perfect avatar that embodies the complex story we want to tell. Uh, And we have to start and end with this character and that character has to somehow go through in this Forrest Gump-like way, all the major milestones of the history we want to, uh, we want to get out of our pens. Um, But just like Forrest Gump, nobody is a perfect avatar, right? And nobody, um, is going to, and and we want to make things accessible by humanizing them and telling stories but the problem is that with that is that it then collapses those stories and reduces those stories to an individual experience when every when even an individual doesn't experience the same thing the same way every time they experience it okay, people are complicated people are diverse um, and so one of the things uh i was wrestling and try to talk about is kind of the, many of the things we all know about which is you know These that most people aren't in the archives, we get stuck telling the stories of powerful people who leave written work behind. And of course, we know this. Um, We know this, although we don't always remember it. Um, And even reading against the grain can be very difficult. Um, But also, when we do write social history, whose social history are we writing? Who are we adding back in? And are they as typical or as representative as we want? And even thinking about the categories of consumer or average or normal, those are categories of those are political constructions. Um, those are positions of privilege to the ability to define what's normal is inherently a privileged, uh, position. So thinking about who we talk about and, um, conflating what's typical with what's representative and what's should be normal and all these complex things, um, are things that I think about in my own work and also wanted to try to explore a little in this essay. Thanks.
3: No, it was great. And, uh, Anna, your piece is sort of a, a bonus chapter of your book, I, I would feel like, and, and it's a lot of exploring of those themes, but in, in a new way. And it introduces us to the character of um, Marion Harland, a food influencer, essentially, of a century ago. Um, and, you know, unlike the, the, the kind of the average consumer that Mookie was trying to get at, celebrities are easier for historians to access and kind of gather material on. But they're also complicated characters whose role in the food system is can be easily mischaracterized, you know, too, right? So, so how does the story of Mary and Harlan help us better treat this topic?
0: Yeah, and just to to go back to Mookie's point for a minute, I I, I really love Mookie's essay, and I think that that kind of um, attention to the experience of writing history and the process and the questions I find so fascinating and often so covered up in a lot of historical scholarship or scholarship in general is like the process. How did we actually get here? You know, we don't quite have a methods section in the way that scientific journal articles do. And yet I think that the, those methods themselves are interesting and important to understanding how we get at our stories. And I don't remember, Mookie, when you shifted to taking that as your focus, but that was one thing that in our writing workshop and in our, in Helen, the writing coach's encouragement was you know, from her perspective outside the discipline to to help us think about illuminating the process a bit more, to help ex- to admit to uncertainty, to speculate in a clear way and say this is, you know, this might have been the case based on what I know, it, you know, maybe not. And I think that that, um, that comes out in a number of the essays is sort of that uh, some attention to the process, Muki's most clearly. But um, I think that's another thing that the book is doing that I really love is sort of allowing for different ways into into these narratives and into why we care about these stories and these people and the process that got us there Um, so in my case yeah i um pulled followed up on this like one line that was in my book canned about how marion harland um who was very much like one of the most well-known and famous like domestic advisors you know cookbook authors and kind of trusted advisors in all ways as in these women for these women middle class white women especially who were starting to uh, take care of their own homes without servants kind of for the first time in the in, around the turn of the 20th century and um in canned i refer to her 1910 publication the story of canning um and that that you know they had been this industry endorsed or industry published book but that was written by this sort of seemingly impartial character. And so I wanted to get more into understanding why she wrote that and what, what the story uh, that got her there was. And in, in fact, in her case, it's so interesting because there was a clear transition from the late 19th century where she was writing really disparaging comments about canned food and how disgusting they were and how no one should eat these things to by 1910, writing an entire book dependent on canned foods and you know saying that they were so important to the kitchen. Um, and in, in telling that story and trying to pull out some of these little threads of sort of, well, is this just a clear story of her selling out? Did they just pay her a lot of money to say what they wanted to say? Or was there something a little more complicated going on? Um, was a bit of, you know, a detective story to try to understand the context of that change. Why between, you know, the couple decade period from the end of the 19th century to the early 20th, it was that not only Marion Harlan, but so many other, um, people in this realm of this new domestic science were taking a different tack on the food industry and how critical these kind of taste makers or celebrity endorsements were to the creation of the food industry, how embedded and enmeshed home economics as a discipline became w- um, with the food industry. And it's a story that others have told um, in, in parts in other places, but I think that in this particular essay, you know, zeroing in on one person, though she was a celebrity and her transition helps us to understand how much, how quickly things change in that moment and set us up for a world in which we sort of expect celebrities uh, and others to be telling us what to buy and why. how consumption is tied to that kind of authority.
3: That's great. Yeah, I think all, all three of your essays are terrific here. And I think in the course of our conversation, we've shouted out 12 12- I think of the 14 essays in the collection, I want to shout out the last two before we move on. Um, and one is, uh, Alex or essay on Filipino, uh, food, Philippine food consumption in the age of American empire, a really fascinating story. And then it's followed right in the collection by, uh, Jeffrey, um, Pilcher's essay on, uh, called does your beer have style the 19th century invention of European beer styles and the rise of the Pilsner. And again, both of these are also about color. The colors is the theme through those as well. Um, and so, uh, all 14 essays really, really fascinating and and and, and quick and and and, and uh, rich reads um, throughout. So, I, folks are really going to enjoy this one. Um, before I let you go, though, I'd love to hear you you uh, tease future projects you'll turn to after the three of you are done your your globe trotting um, tour promoting this book. I hope which which takes you um, um, into the, into the fall. I hope. But uh, but Muki, can you let us know a little bit maybe about about the about the forthcoming book you're working on? Uh,
4: sure. So yeah, the book is. Um being finished right now and this comes out of my dissertation research which is of course the history of cereal and so much more Uh, so this is really um, a look at the industrialization of the food supply in the United States around the turn of the 20th century and looking at why did so many people um, embrace the industrialization of the food supply as something that was good and wholesome and healthy and maybe even natural, uh, which seems completely counterintuitive to us. Machines are not nature, uh, but for a lot of people at this time, maybe they were a lot better than what was already happening. So trying to square that that contradiction while also exploring how contests over industrialization played out in distribution, in marketing, in all the things, frankly, that we've been talking about today. Uh, so that's, that's, that's what I'm working on.
3: Uh,
5: thank you so much and uh, and ben what's on your plate um i'm working uh, another thing that uh, is is created or invented during this period 1870s to 1930s really it's it comes into to clarity greater in the 1920s 30s and 40s is the idea that the purpose of agriculture is to feed the world um, so we have a, a running narrative uh that we should be feeding the world how are we going to feed the world and um there's been so much work done on this and a lot of it on the green revolution and norm Borlaug, kind of as as the middle of the story in the middle of the 20th century and um in part uh i guess this might echo um mookie's comment too like because i'll talk to students a lot so much about this and if that if that phrase comes up like how are we going to feed the world why are we doing this um it leads into questions like where do we get the idea that um the goal of agriculture is to feed the world. And what are we really doing when we have that goal? Because it turns out historically that it's not so much about hungry people, the world or food. It's about geopolitical, you know, commitments and uh, ideological characterizations of how to, how to manage and control populations and places. Um, So I'm working on a book and I'm really at the beginnings of this now um, called how not to feed the world our century long quest to produce more food and where it has led us astray. And, um, I, I'd like the, the first half of it is going to chart out the the derivation of the the idea. Like how did this become the policy or the identity of what agriculture should be doing? And that's a story for me that begins at the uh, end of my last book in the early 1900s and has made its case by the 1960s. By the time Borlaug gets his Nobel prize in, in the early seventies, um, you know, We've established that feeding the world is this dominant trope. Um, others will talk about that as you know a productivist paradigm or modernization. Um, and the second half of the book is a series of an, uh, 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 stories about uh, other ways that you can think about what's what's the purpose of food. So instead of asking how do we feed the world, the question is what does it mean to be well fed? And if you change the question to what does it mean to be well fed, then production and high quantity is just one answer. Um, community health. Um, uh, domestic identity, uh, ecological health. Um, all there A host of other uh, issues come up as reasons why you would organize a food system. Um, and so I'm going to try to do the first half to give the big story and the second half to provide the alternative so that we know there's a lot of other things we could be doing that, in the end, will we'll end up having people, the world will be fed, um, but will be well fed, or so I hope. So that's the project that I'm working on. And I'll I'll acknowledge that I'm in the early stages of it.
3: All right. Nonetheless, I want to book you both right now for uh, for when these books come out. And, uh, and, and Anna, I, I peeked at your university website last night and I saw things under future projects I did not know about. And I'm very excited to hear about them. But um, what are you willing to talk about now?
0: Um, I'll plug two projects. One quickly is one that I'm in the middle of. I'm writing a book called U.S. History in 15 Foods. Um, and this one, it very much picks up on so many of the things that, that Acquired Taste does and that we're talking about today. 15 really short 5,000 word chapters that try to take us through the entire kind of survey of the U.S. of U.S. history, but um, chronologically moving and, and anchoring each m- moment in American history in a particular food, um, a, a book that I hope will have a, a wide readership in terms of the way I'm writing it accessibly and certainly for students, high school or undergraduate or students of any phase in life, um, to try to both tell to explain why food is so central to U.S. history and also how we can look at and re-examine, you know. uh, moments in U.S. history through lenses of particular quirky foods that create, you know, a potluck of 15 foods that are probably not the ones that you would guess, um, but that yield really interesting um, stories. And um, that one hopefully will be uh, coming out next year um, in 2022. And the other bigger, longer term project that I want to mention, because it actually has some um origin stories in acquired taste in the workshop weekend that we did um, is a history of food waste, um, which is a project that I've done a little bit of work on, um, but will probably, you know, is taking a back seat at the moment. But part of what really spurred me to realize I wanted to write about this, two things. One were Tom Oakey's essay about uh, push carts and decay and the issue of um, distribution and how how that's a necessary part of limiting food waste. And certainly part of what canners were very interested in doing in my work is how do we use this tool to to limit food waste. But also when we were um, during this workshop, we all got together and we ordered some platters of food from a local place for, um, uh, we had an event, I guess we haven't mentioned, we had all the um, authors try to little mini sort of TED Talk style presentations that they did, like a seven minute, I think, presentation to public audiences that then organized among some of his community. And um, to try to pithily say, what is the one thing that this essay is about? And that move between audiences was really useful, I think, for the authors. But uh, that is to say that the platters were delivered as they often are on these like decorative kale, you know, fountains, Bottoms the the platters are lined with kale or lettuce or whatever. And the actual food you're supposed to eat is on top of the greens. And the thought is that I guess that those greens usually get discarded, but I didn't want to discard them. And so I saved them. And the next day at the house, like when we were having lunch, I thought, oh, I'll just like roast this kale and we can have that as part of our lunch. But I wasn't paying attention, and then it burned, and you know I think the smoke (laughs) alarms went off in this house. And uh, I was just thinking about the lengths to which I went to save this like kale garnish, and then ended up burning it, and how kind of obsessive I am about not wasting food. And um, (laughs) and at the time, I was really casting about for a next topic, and it really sort of came together that food waste was something I wanted to work on. So I've been gathering material. I've written one article on grocery garbage out of that material, and will eventually write this much bigger, hopefully somewhat global history about how we've come to be um, a nation of food wasters and a world of food wasters and how that contributes to climate crisis and global greenhouse gas emissions and cultural norms about what is waste and what isn't and why all that kale is being thrown away.
3: Terrific. Uh, Such exciting books on the horizon here. The book we've been talking about again is Acquired Tastes, Stories About the Origins of Modern Food. It is out today from MIT Press, and it is edited by my guests, Benjamin Cohen, Michael Kadeko, and Anna Zeta. Go get your copy now. Thank you all for your time and for this book. Thank you, Brian. Thank
0: you,
4: Thank you Brian.